chapter 13. Uh, it's always a joy and an honor to be able to open God's word for you this morning uh, because I love this word. Uh, without this word, your pastor would be lost. I just want you to know that. I know it. I want you to know it. <clears throat> let, me, uh, let me pray for us as we open the scriptures. Father God, we thank you for your word. We're thankful that we have a sure and solid foundation upon which to stand. You have not left us wandering in the dark, Father, but you've given us a light in your word to point us to Christ. And so this morning I pray that he would be lifted up. We would see him most clearly this morning. And Father, Lord, we would then walk in the way of love this morning as Jesus did for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that the cultural air we breathe is slowly becoming more and more hostile towards followers of Christ. I'm convinced you already know this. You don't need me to tell you. However, if you're unaware, simply Google what's going on in the world today, things like Target and Budweiser. You don't need me to tell you that, though. Uh, as your pastor, I do not need to point out to you all the ways in which the world out there does not line up with God's word. And let me tell you why you don't need me to tell you that. You don't need me to tell you the world out there is broken and busted because many of us have a healthy grasp on gospel doctrine. That is, we have a, a good understanding of what the scriptures seem to say as it relates to what's true in the world. Fundamentally, I believe that we know how God has wired the world how sin in our own hearts have left us dead and in need of a savior, and how Jesus reached into the muck and the mire of your life to pull you out of your sins. Not only did he do that when he died on the cross in your place, he then sent the Spirit of God to live in your hearts, those of you who had professed Christ. This is the sign and the symbol that God will one day finally come and rescue us from this old creation that is marked and marred by sin by creating a new heaven, a new earth, in which you and I as followers of Christ will sin no more. So you don't need me to tell you that the world is broken and busted because we have a strong grasp on gospel doctrine. We know the truths of the scriptures. We know that God alone is holy. You and I are not. You don't need me to tell you that. We know that the Father is merciful to us to give us grace when we didn't deserve it. We know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will be saved. You don't need me to tell you that. You already know it. But as I've mentioned a few times over the last few weeks, in the life of our church and our congregation, I have little fear that we are in danger imminent danger of falling into misunderstanding the gospel doctrine. I have, I have no doubt, as I've said, if I began to preach something contrary to this book that uh, I would probably get tackled off of the stage by Philip. <laughs> you don't need me to tell you the world out there is broken and busted and that we currently, uh, if you don't need me to tell you that, then what do you need to hear this morning? What do you need to hear? In a world that's going to lose its mind this week, no doubt, uh, I think it's important for us to remember that just as important as gospel doctrine is, gospel culture is equally as important. 
Pastor Ray Ortland says that churches need gospel doctrine plus gospel culture. He says it like this. He says, truth without grace is harsh and ugly. Grace without truth is sentimental and cowardly. And he goes on to describe these kind of churches. A church that has gospel doctrine but no gospel culture is a church of hypocrisy. But a church of gospel culture but no gospel doctrine is a church of fragility. But a church that has understood gospel doctrine, right truths about God and embraces the gospel culture which that truth should produce is a church of power. And in our series over the last few weeks, we looked at how the scriptures seem to, to talk about how gospel truths, how gospel doctrine should then lead us into right living and walking together as Christians. We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the way in which God's people should love the Lord their God with all their hearts, minds, souls, and strength. And then teach their children to do the same. We, we show that the gospel culture is something that is aimed at a mission, namely the glory of God. And to reach the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ. And then we looked at uh, how Christ welcomes us. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We tried to remember back of how, how, how did Christ find us? How did he save us when we weren't looking for him? And therefore, a gospel culture is always living within an atmosphere that welcomes broken and busted people who may not be looking for God. We then dove into Galatians chapter 2, seeing that there's a way to live that actually denies the grace of God when we try to earn salvation by stacking rules. And last week we sat under the way of Hebrews chapter 10, which opened our eyes to see that we have both access to God and an advocate with Jesus as our great priest, which should lead us then into honesty with God, commitment to our belief in the gospel, and how we should always be worried about each other's faith, provoking one another to uh, love and good works with encouragement. But this week I want to land the plane, the plane of our, the plane of our gospel culture sermon series here by focusing on what needs to be one of the most fundamental, significant aspects of our church culture. If we're going to truly have a gospel culture, that is. Which is this, it's a, it's a culture of love. It's a culture of love. Now I'll wait until the end to bring this sermon, to talk about the main aspect of a gospel culture, after covering mission and welcoming and freedom and encouraging, and then now moving into this aspect. Over the last few weeks, we've been highlighting aspects of what a good gospel culture would look like in hopes that once we left this place, sermon after sermon, Sunday after Sunday, that then you and I would then actually try to walk out what this means in our daily lives. James, uh, to be what James calls doers of the word and not only hearers. So if week in and week out you show up and all you do is hear me preach and you never walk out of this place and say, okay, I'm going to go apply that to my life with the help of the Holy Spirit, then you walk out these doors as only a hearer. But my hope is that hasn't been your story. My hope is that you've walked out of these doors the last four weeks being encouraged to uh, trust the Lord and lean more and more onto Jesus and begin, however small, to take steps towards embracing this type of gospel culture by being a doer. So, for example, this past week, my prayer is that you have taken intentional steps to try to encourage one another 
love one another, provoke one another. Or as Cindy Grove shared in a small group uh, a couple weeks ago after the sermon of welcoming, she, she, she uh, shared with us that she has a great fear of uh, a small talk uh, in the sense that she's not good at it. And so when I talk about welcoming and going to people and finding someone that they walk into church, making a beeline to them to love them, she got all sorts of out of wonk. But she said, you know what, Pastor, I did it. I did it. I just walk up and pray to the Lord, give me something to talk about because I don't know what I'm going to say to this person. And she did it. So as you've been taking these steps toward, towards producing in your own heart a gospel culture, my prayer has been that you would find two things. Two things. Number one, this is really, really hard work. It's really hard. Some of you have struggles in certain uh, areas of, of gospel culture more so than others. So, so for some of you, you may do nothing but small talk with folks, welcoming folks. But you actually may actually struggle. And how do I actually encourage? Like this person is giving me their problems and I'm not quite sure what to do. I don't know how to encourage them, Pastor. And number two, that we can only truly do this if we love one another. It's very hard to do this. We can only do it if we love one another. So therefore, we decide to land the plane here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to show that love is the fruit of the Spirit which enables us to have a gospel culture. Look with it. We're, we're going to read this together. At the end, I'm gonna do, we're going to do something different here. At the end, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to reply with, see, last few weeks, y'all, I've been working on that praise. So at the end of the text, the end of chapter 13, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say, thanks be to God. You want, you want to practice it? <laughs> y'all looking at me like, I don't know if I can, I don't know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I love you guys. Let's look at the text. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or, or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of our God. Praise be to God. Three things I want to point at your out in the text to you this morning, then I'll be out your way. Uh, three things, and uh, I alliterated these for you, for ease of remembrance. Don isn't here. He loves it when I do this. Uh, very good Baptist fashion. Uh, however, I'm not very good at this, so I'm just going to be fully transparent with you. Is that okay? Fully transparent. I had other words picked out that didn't start with the same letter. So I used this new, uh, new confangled contraption on the internet called ChatGPT. I said, can you give me a word that starts with the same letter that has these three themes in it? And it did. So here you go. Me and ChatGPT wrote this sermon. 
Number one, love is essential. Love is essential. Number two, love is enduring. Love is enduring. And number three, love is everlasting. It's everlasting. You see, all three start with the E. I'm a good Baptist. Let's look at uh, this first idea that love is essential. And see, what I mean here is, 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 is it's, vast, it's vitally important. So much so that to not have love would mean that you actually are missing the defining characteristic of what a Christian actually is. It's that, like, essential. Like, we all went through 2020, right? Like, we know what essential means, or, or maybe we don't, actually. Maybe we're more confused because everything was essential back then, and we're not quite sure. Either way, to not have love as a Christian, Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 13, is to not have that is to, to miss it entirely. And if it's true that, uh, that a Christian can miss it, then it's true that entire congregations, entire churches could be missing the defining characteristic of what a church is. In other words, a church that has everything going for it but lacks love has nothing. We could have the best programs, the most amazing building, the best music, the best website, but all of it without love amounts to nothing. You can be a person with exceptional gifts, abilities, great insight, smarter than the smartest person you know. You could have a huge personality, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. This is why if you have tried to be encouraging to someone this week without actually loving them, perhaps you felt in your own heart that this is not working. Love is the distinguishing mark of a true believer. A church like ours, which seeks to be true to Jesus and true to the scriptures, must first be loving. Look at verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Let me just say, by the way, this is often read at weddings. It's a beautiful text. It's, it's, it's all about love, but let me just bring you back into the scriptures for a minute. Paul ain't writing to a wedding. He's writing to a church with real problems. Real problems. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. You see what Paul is saying is that you can point to all the other good things in your life, all the accolades, all the accomplishments, all your achievements, but if in your heart you do not have love, then in reality you have nothing. You have nothing. And this is nothing new. The Old Testament continually, constantly reminded the people of God that at the core, God was not demanding sacrifices and offerings, but rather was after the people's heart's affections. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 21 says this, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God. And you shall be my people and walk in the way that I command you, that it, will, that it may be well with you. Psalm 40 verse 6, in sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted. But you've given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my, oh my God. Your law is within 
my heart. You see, the Old Testament has continually reminded the people it's not merely about external functions. It's not merely about showing, but rather about being. It's about the heart's affections. And then Jesus, of course, shows up in the New Testament. And what's he do? In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, what does, he, what does he do? He says things like, if you, you, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say to you, whoever hates his brother has killed him in his heart already. What's Jesus doing in here? A lot of folks say that Jesus is elevating God's law. But you realize it's not what Jesus is doing, right? He, he, he's not elevating the law. Are you tra- he, he isn't saying the law says don't kill, and since you're so good at doing that, let me take it up a notch for you and say, you know what? Don't kill, but also don't even hate your brother. He's not elevating God's law or even adding to it, then, then what, is it, what is he doing? He's pointing the people of God to the root of the law. The root of not killing your brother is not not kill your brother. That's not the root. That's the, that's the fruit of it. The root of not killing your brother is not hating him. See, he's not elevating. Instead, he's digging in deeper. Stating that positively, the, the root of not killing your brother is actually loving him. Because you won't kill those you love. Jesus was and is pushing you and I further and deeper into the way we should be living as God's people. And love is absolutely essential in that. Because it is of, out of love that everything else flows. David Platt says it like this, Love is the necessity apart from which nothing and no one matters at all. At the same time, love is the field in which everything in the Christian life flourishes. Love is essential. But that doesn't mean love is easy. In fact, it can at times be quite the opposite. In verses 4 through 7, Paul lays out some of the ways in which love looks, which is not how our society defines love at all. Our society primarily defines love in terms of individual feelings and sentimentality. How something makes us feel is the basis for understanding whether or not it's truly loving or hateful, based upon our culture. Is what you said to me, does it make me feel good or not? That's the only basis our culture actually has of understanding what true love actually is. And it's, it'll never hold water. It can't stand under its own weight. The, the issue is that it's defining love uh, has no definition outside of subjectivity. Always changing. Never secure, never solid, never real. This is what love is, practically speaking, in verses 4. Look at it with me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, love is not only essential, but love is also uh, enduring. It's essential and enduring. Paul is not talking about abstraction here. You see, this is not marriage material only. He's talking about the real nitty-gritty of life. 
And he's pushing our faces into it, isn't he? He's saying, love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant. He, he has no qualms about it. He's like, well, maybe sometimes you know, this is what love is. Love looks at the after the interests of other people and puts them first. Love is selfless. It, it doesn't look at like what's best for me. It always looks out what's best for other people. It seeks the good of other people rather than the good of ourselves. This is what Paul is saying. That, that's love. You want to know what love looks like? It looks like that. It's not just something we feel or something we think about. It's also something we must do. You see, Paul's description of love here includes 16 action words. It's not a feel-good feeling or merely being kind. Many people define, like, have you, have you ever tried this? Just think, just think. You don't have to answer out loud, although it's fine if you want to. Have you ever, have you ever thought about how would I define love to a child? Think about it. What are the words you would reach for? What kind of language would you grasp to try to take this concept of love, which, by the way, cannot be measured, cannot be uh, scientifically quantified? How would you define love? I'm afraid for a vast majority of us, we often define love as merely niceness to everyone. Oh, be nice to that person. Of course I was loving to that person, pastor. I was very nice. But niceness is not love. In fact, you can be nice to someone and unloving all at the same time. And vice versa, you can be firm and disciplining and loving all at the same time. So, so what's the difference? What's the difference? The difference is really shown here in verse 6, is it not? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. This means that love and truth go hand in hand. If you treat someone in such a way that this would push them further and further from the truth, then you are being unloving. But when you treat someone in such a way that it draws them into the truth, then, friends, you, then you're being loving. So, so what, what do we do? What, Pastor, what, what is the truth? If in your, uh, I'm trying to think of how the words are, if you're trying to love someone and you merely tell them what they want to hear, is that loving church? It's not a trick question. If you tell someone merely what they want to hear, is it loving? It's not. It's not. But if you tell someone uh, the truth and yet have no grace, is it loving? It's, it's also not. That's correct. It's not. Look at the end of chapter 12 here with me. In chapter 12, Paul is teaching on the fact that all are one in the body of Christ, even if we have different giftings and different blessings that the Father has given us. Look at me. Look with me at verse 27. It says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do we all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Look at verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Paul is saying not everyone has the same gifting. We're all wired differently. 
The Father is giving us different blessings, different skill sets, different ways of thinking about the world that makes some things easier and some things not so easy. And yet Paul says in verse 31, doesn't matter what your giftings are, whether you can teach or not, whether you can uh, uh, lead or not, whether you possess the gifts of healing or not. He says, uh, I'm going to point you to a better, higher way. He says at the end, end of verse 31, a more excellent way. This way that Paul is referring to here is not left undefined for us. It's not like he ends chapter 12 and then changes the script and moves into something else. The whole point of chapter 13 is to show you basic Christianity 101, the more excellent way is love. A love that endures. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a very basic gospel question. One of which we often need to remind ourselves. How do you know that God loves you? Just let that, let, that, let that sit for a minute. How do you know that God loves you? Those of you who have not yet seen how glorious God is, I want you to lean in here and listen because I want you to hear the cry of God's people and the hope that we have. Church, how do we know that God loves us? If your answer to that question is, I'm a good person. I pray to prayer. I read my Bible every day. I give my money to the church. Somebody say, amen. I volunteer my time in ways that I know I won't get paid back. If any of those are your answer, then you have not yet fully grasped how good the gospel really is. Friends, how do we know that God loves us? We know God loves us because he gave us his son. Romans 5 eight. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, love is enduring. Christ endured for you and I. But being patient with people is hard work. Continually going unnoticed by others is difficult. Bearing with other people's sin is heavy. It is. Absolutely is. I'm not up here saying that love is easy. That's what the world out there says. It's why they say if it's not easy, then you know it's not love. But listen, they're wrong. Love is not easy. Enduring is not easy. Believing is not easy. Hoping is not easy. Why? Because we're surrounded on every side by sin and the effects of it. We are crushed. In by the weight of things having gone wrong. Of course, love is not easy. But it is worth it. The way in which Paul refers to it at the end of chapter 12, 12, the way in which we should live and operate, the only way we're going to have gospel culture is by love. Love is so much hard work, which is why some of these jokers in Corinth we're trying to say that their giftings were more important than the way that they actually love people. Look at verse 8. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, 
they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. You see what Paul is saying is saying that like all these things that people boast about, tongues, giftings, prophecy, knowledge. He said all of that, we know like this much about it. We understand all of our doings, all of our, all of our giftings, like this much. He says we know in part. And he says all of those things will eventually pass away. Think about it. In the new heaven and the new earth, what need for prophecy will there be? What need of knowledge will there be when we know all things? But what need of love will there be? You see, he says in verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He, he gives this illustration in verse 11. Right? When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I used that verse like three times this week talking to folks, um, just telling them to grow up, basically. But that's not what Paul means here, is it? It's not. So enjoy your video games, enjoy your sports, all that. That's fine. That's fine. Good gifts from the Father. But what Paul is saying is that uh, eventually we're going to grow up out of this thing called our lives. And he says what's not going to pass away is love. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. If you listed what the jokers in Corinth thought about and prioritized, these gifts, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, would be at the top of their list. But then Paul says all of these gifts will cease to be important in eternity. They will no longer be important. But love will never become irrelevant or obsolete. Love will outlast so much of what we do as a church. You understand that, right? Like love will outlast what you and your giftings can do. The way you love people will make much more of an impact in people's hearts. If we were the most missional church, but did not love the people we were trying to reach with the gospel, we would become a church focused on merely building a bigger building. If we are the most welcoming church, but do not love the people we are welcoming, we will become a people who continually put on a mask that says, I love you, all the while in our hearts, never meaning it. If we are the most encouraging church, but do not love the people we are trying to encourage, our words will have no effect and it will always feel flat. Love is essential. Love is enduring and love is everlasting. Let me close with this. Love is the defining characteristic in the life of a believer. Love is the central aspect of how we will have and sustain a gospel culture within our church. So let me end with this question. How do you, how do, how do you get it? I don't feel love, Pastor. I don't feel loving towards these people. How do we get it? Friends, those of us in Christ, those of you in Christ already have it. The question is not how do we get it. We get it from God through the Holy Spirit. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, 
But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Here's why. Why does hope not put us to shame, Pastor? Because God's love has been, past tense, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, God's love has already been poured into our hearts. That's part of what it means to actually understand gospel doctrine. Is understanding that God's love for us is put within us. The question is not how do we get it, how do we get this love. The question is, do we know it? Are we living in light of that truth? Do we truly believe it? Fam, let me encourage you in the Lord that because Jesus has died for you and because the Spirit is living within you even now, you have this love of God already within you. And this love of God will naturally flow out of you for other people when you trust Him, when you lean into Him, when you say like Cindy does, I just... I never know what to say when I try to welcome people. I'm not good at small talk. And then she leans in and goes and welcomes people. You say, well, hold up, Pastor. That seems like hypocritical. She doesn't feel like welcoming, and yet here she is welcoming. How is the difference between that and hypocrisy is the fact that it's driven by a motive of love. Do you understand the difference? If you don't love, if you don't have love, then my only answer to you is the answer I have every week. Come to Jesus. Come to Him. Come to Jesus. He will give you a new heart. Come to Jesus. He will show you the love you have been longing for your entire life, even if you didn't know it. Come to Him. When a church continually comes back to the gospel, continually comes back and sees how Jesus has welcomed them, how Jesus has treated them, then and only then will they be moved by love, by the love of the Father to actually then go and love other people. You try to do this without the love of God, you will fail. You try to love other people without the help of the Spirit, listen, they will drive you up a wall. Trust me, I know. I'm a pastor. I need the Lord's help to be more loving. So church, may we lean into this. May we be encouraged in the Lord that his love is already in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we consider just for a few moments this morning, how every action, every deed, every thought, every motive comes down to do we love you? And having understood how much you loved us, will we then share this love with other other people? Only in a gospel culture which truly wraps its arm around and comprehends that you loved us when we were unlovable, when you welcomed us when we were unwelcomable, when you encouraged us and made us into the image of Christ daily when we did not deserve it out of love, then and only then will we fully understand gospel culture. And so, Father, we pray that, Lord, it wouldn't just be words that we say that we believe. 
that it would be the lives that we live, what Paul calls a still more excellent way, a way of love. Father, where we fail with these things, I pray you would encourage our hearts. Where we feel no love, may we lean into what's actually true. May we love others though they disagree with us. May we be patient, kind, bear all things, hope all things, believe all things, endures all things, Father. As Jesus entered the cross, I pray that you would empower us to go give that love to other people. Lord, we need your help with this and so much more. We ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.